Hey there, you're listening to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. And today I'm joined by journalist and author Ryan Grimm to discuss Biden's first 100 days in office, what he's accomplished and has yet to accomplish, and what we can expect from his administration in the future. We also dive into Ryan's book, We've Got People, to cover a brief history of grassroots organizing in the United States, from Jesse Jackson to AOC. I think this episode is going to be really useful for folks who are looking for a synthesis between electoralism and mass politics. So enjoy. All right, cool. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, few things I want to talk about, um, just to kind of sketch out this conversation. Um, I do want to talk about Biden's first 100 days, which uh, we passed that milestone last week. And I've been seeing a lot of uh, reporting um, from you know mainstream media that uh, he has exceeded uh, progressives' expectations, right? And uh, online, and luckily this is mostly just relegated to online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the real world, but um, there is validity to the criticism that uh, maybe we're getting like a little bit too far ahead of ourselves. So what I wanted to do with you is run down um, a couple of uh, policies that he's kind of been circling around now, especially mm-hmm. with the uh, infrastructure bill and education, policing, climate change. And I'm going to kind of run through those things with you and talk about them honestly and see what Biden has done and what more he can do. And then um, to close out the conversation, I want to talk about your book, We've Got People. Talk about, is it possible to push Biden left? What can progressives actually do in Congress and um, kind of the state of organizing or where you see it? So I know that's expansive, but um, to kind of start off, the pandemic, what what is his response been to the pandemic? And do you think that there's anything more that he could do, especially via executive order? I mean, it's it's been it's been good. And, you know, there was a fight very early on over who would be chief of staff. Mm-hmm. And there was the there was the Ron Klain camp uh, who who ended up being chief of staff. And then there was uh, what's what's the dude's name? His his longtime friend who was a co-founder of the DLC, you know, back in the 1980s, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, which the Democratic kind of, leadership council. Yeah. The right wing kind of built, he recruited Bill Clinton to run for president, like argued that, you know, the Democrats need to get away from the, the left need to get away from workers need to embrace. Are we talking Rom? No. What's his name? Um, totally a total right wing dude. Um, and like a proud right wing dude, like author of the crime bill. Now, Ron Klain, as somebody who'd been close to Biden throughout most of his career, also has his hands in all sorts of bad things and w- too close to big tech and has plenty of there's there's, pl- there's plenty wrong with him. But what people, it, both his detractors and his supporters say about him is he's like the guy that you go to in the Democratic Party if you need something run efficiently and effectively. Mm. Like, forget about ideology. He's just like he's just good at managing stuff. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which, when it comes to pandemic response, like that's everything, because yeah. it's it's not it shouldn't be a political question. I mean, it's you know it's become you know infused with our culture war, whether yeah. you're going to get vaccinated or wear a mask, or whatever. But, exactly. Yeah. But the idea, the general idea of like finding the raw materials, producing a vaccine, and distributing it to people, that ought not really to be political or partisan. It's like yeah. 
It's can you actually do it? And and Trump, you know, threw a lot of money at it, and you know, I think deserves deserves credit for that part of it. Uh, and then he was pushing hard because he thought correctly, I think, that if he could get a vaccine before the election, that that helps him get reelected. And so yeah, exactly. he was put he was pushing really hard, uh, but he wasn't doing much in terms of rollout. Mm. Like there's this amazing quote from him. I forget where it was, where he said, after the election, I've never worked so hard in my life. <laughs> and what he was referring to is trying to overturn the election. Yeah. And it's like, well, dude, th- if you look at the chart of like <laughs> November, December, people were dying by the tens of thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were running out of space to put bodies. He's like, I, I never worked so hard in my life. Yeah. Trying to find new votes in Georgia that yeah. would flip the election. Yes. And so we had we had that period after you know leading into the election and up through inauguration where there was just an absolute vacuum mm-hmm. of organizational leadership when it came to the pandemic. Um, you know, when when they started saying we're gonna do a million shots a day and we're gonna do a hundred million in the first hundred days, a lot of people were like, Ooh, you're setting yourself up there. Yeah. You know, you're not gonna be able to hit that. But you know, they hit it and and it and exceeded it. That's on the domestic side. Obviously, they now need to put actual meaning behind an actual action behind what Biden said at his his joint address, where he said, we want to be the what, what do you say? The arsenal of vaccines or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, good. Mm-hmm. Do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you have to you actually have to do it. You, you already promised you told Adi Barkan that you would <laughs> wave. You know, you've seen that clip going around that you would that you would wave patents. And it, even if you wanted to be classic Joe Biden and split right down the middle, you could say, look, we're licensing the patent yeah. for free mm. until this pandemic's under control. Like for the next year, two years, you could just license it. it. You know, I say wave it, you know, just, but Biden, you know, that's not who Biden is. So he could even just do that. How can you hold on to it? And, and then there are people that say, well, look, it's not actually the patent that's stopping it. Mm. Okay. Then what's stopping you from exactly exactly <laughs> okay? So then license them the patent, and then if they still haven't made it, then you can be like, "See, told you that wasn't the problem." And and that's why that's a I think on the domestic side, like um even someone who's as cynical as myself, right? You kind of have to like congratulate him or at least acknowledge that um the the vacuum that he filled right mm-hmm. after Trump's abysmal response, right, or lack of a response to the pandemic, something that like yeah, this this is common sense. This is what has has to happen and should have happened. But um especially as the son of West Indian immigrants, I like I really feel like. I can't feel good about how restrictive we are, right, with vaccine like nationalism, you know, mm-hmm. with these onerous patent laws. Um, I think it was Jen Psaki who said that um, they're going to send uh, more than 60 million vaccines, right, um, to other countries. And I'm like, 60 million? Like, that's like a drop in the bucket, right? And I think it's what they had of AstraZeneca warehoused. Yeah. Why do you, why, I mean, there's a, probably like a simplistic reason for this, but why is, why, why does Biden, like kind of tread that fine line between how can I put it? I guess when I think of his foreign policy, it seems that he's really obsessed with America um, having standing in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And being like the the dominant hegemonic power. Right. And it seems to me that the vaccine, like this vaccine nationalism is a part of that sort of. Right. And I don't really understand why. Why not be more generous? Yeah. Why not be more generous? There, It, it is interesting because there, there's a real tension that you identified there between 
what what could bring America better standing, you know, than and even bring his corporate allies yeah. better standing yeah. than than getting the, these these kind of American multinational corporate vaccines dominant around the world and make and and like ending this pandemic while the Chinese are over here faking their vaccine results and and, mm-hmm. and like it, so if you're in a like conflict with with China and with Russia, what better way? Yeah, to yeah. do it. What better way to triumph than say, look, you know, China's kind of foreign policy is to spend a lot of money in other countries, and people like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, they, you know, they've they built roads all over Africa, for instance. Yeah. Uh, but like within two weeks of them leaving, those roads are falling apart because mm-hmm. they because mm-hmm. there's you know, it's, it's not like American road builders are the best, but like here in the U.S., the roads are actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Like they're not going to fall apart within two weeks of being of being constructed. And there's and you know they're they're cutting corners they're chintzing, uh, and so their 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 attempt to to buy favor kind of backfires on them, mm-hmm. and that you saw a similar thing with the with the vaccine, that with them cutting corners on the testing and now people aren't people don't necessarily trust that their vaccine is as effective as, um, you know as as they claim that it is. Yeah. And so what better way for the U.S. to actually you know promote its own image and make the world a better place by spreading its by spreading the vaccine around the world and it, it's in it's in tension with his he won't call it america first because that's no. trump's phrase and he's <laughs> exactly. got the link links to the nazis and <laughs> yeah, yeah um but it, it's it's in tension with his nationalism mm. with his you know uh and, and sometimes like, good nationalism like he got dunked on in dc for saying you know i want the windmills to be made in pittsburgh not in beijing because mm. kind of globalists attitude of, among a lot of free traders is like who cares where the windmills are made yeah well a lot of yeah. people do care they want the jobs they want the jobs to be here so he has you know he's nationalist in the right direction sometimes mm-hmm. but it, maybe it's just over overriding his um you know overriding his instinct to get american prestige spread around the world because everybody around him is i'm sure arguing the the pharma talking points mm-hmm. and so and at the same time, he's a politician. He's like, we only, we're only 50% vaccinated. And politicians are always nervous about foreign aid, yeah. you know, that, they're, that there's going to be backlash, that they're doing too much to help uh, foreigners mm-hmm. uh, when the United States is still, is still in need. So maybe they need to get to a place where there's just empty appointments everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So we got enough vaccines, but we don't, nobody wants them. So, yeah, all right, yeah. now we're going to help. But I don't. I don't know. It. There, you know, and I think there's a there's a level of um, you become a sociopath after being in government for fifty years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you, you get sent brain. Yeah. You have to because <laughs> you're running this like nasty empire that mm-hmm. is killing millions of people. Like the number of people that the U.S. has directly or indirectly killed around the world since he was elected to the Senate in 1972, mm-hmm. well into the tens of millions. Yeah. You know, just absolute yeah. barbarism. And so if you're actively participating in that for 50 years, day to day, it's got to do something to your soul Yeah, yeah. Um, where it makes it easier for you to make decisions where, that where we look at them and we're like, what are you doing? Exactly. Yeah. So on that on that note, let's uh, let's talk about one of Biden's uh, greatest hits. And this is like a kind of spearheading uh, with an arch segregationist, Strom Thurmond, um, the era of mass incarceration. Right. Especially because, I mean, obviously, um, there's talk about police reform, 
where uh, the Democrats uh, in the House voted for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was spearheaded by Karen Bass, um, representative out of California. And I mean, <laughs> again, like as an abolitionist, right, I kind of got to take the gains where I can. Right. And this bill definitely has some good things in it, right? Ending qualified immunity, right? Um, having a national database, right? Of, um, you know, police killings, you know, banning chokeholds, even though New York had already done that, had banned chokeholds when Eric Garner was killed. Right. But okay, fair. But this is, in, this is in contrast. And again, this is something that rubs me the wrong way. It's in contrast with Biden's, like, history, tough on crime history, right? Mm-hmm. What What do you think... And again, this might sound like a similar question I just asked you, but what do you think has um, led to this sort of change of heart, right? Because I remember in the debates with Trump, Trump was trying to get him to say tough on crime, right? Or law and order. That's what it was, where Trump was goading Biden into saying it, right? And also we saw that uh, with the down ballot races, right? We saw that Democrats, House Democrats, like I think Spanberger from Virginia, I forget her first name, but she was on a call blaming House progressives for the defunding the police, right? Biden's already said that that's not something that he agrees with. He actually wants to give more money to cops. Right. What do you think about this, like, about face? Like, especially in the face of, like, you know, the George Floyd trial, the verdict. Right. It's so far, it's a, mostly a rhetorical about face. And if you remember in, it was a December or so, I, I, I obtained and posted audio of his meeting with a lot of civil rights leaders mm. where he said, look, I'm all for policing, uh, police reform, Yeah, but don't talk about it until after the Georgia elections. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to get killed. We got killed over defund the police. Like, so that was hit. Like he certain he has internalized those politics. Like he believes that they, they got hurt in, mm-hmm. in Senate and house races over defund. Mm-hmm. And whenever you have a politician who's saying, I want to do something, but it's politically bad for me. So let's wait to do it until after X he's probably going to wait forever. Yeah, exactly. Because somebody who's just a politician in his bones never wants to do something that's politically bad for him. Mm-hmm. And there's always something coming. Mm-hmm. So back then it was January 5th and he, and they won, so they won, they took the Senate. Now you've got elections coming in New Jersey and Virginia that mm-hmm. are going to signal you know to to people how the how the midterms might go. And you got the midterms coming up. Yeah. Then he, if he's healthy enough, he's up for re-election. Mm. And so, if he really believes that that's that it's a political problem for him to to go for that, then he's not going to do it. Yeah. Un- yeah. Unless he's pushed so hard that he has that he has no choice. The chance for people to push him into positions that he didn't want to hold was the primary. Yeah. Of. of the, the last primary mm. and they, they did they did so effectively like if you look at his platform it would have been like the most progressive platform of a presidential candidate short of short of bernie sanders and and practically other than uh medicare for all like if biden ran in 2016 with that platform people have been like what is going on with this <laughs> like left-wing nut job this yeah. is, who is this guy <laughs> but because things had moved so far in those few years that him kind of sidling up just to the right of it, of all of the rest of it had him pretty far in a progressive direction. There, there isn't going to, if he's healthy enough, there's not going to really be a competitive primary that I can envision. And so there won't be a whole lot of opportunity to kind of jam him into those progressive boxes again, because you'll go be back to that scenario 
where it was when it was Biden versus Trump, left had very little influence at that point because all his his the the vast base of his voters is like Trump is the worst and I don't care. They'd vote for Putin to replace. Like, <laughs> I don't know about yeah. that, but maybe yeah. <laughs> they yeah. they they struck their chin a little bit. And I mean, think Bloomberg, about it. You know what I mean? Like Bloomberg, okay. like yes, ran Bloomberg. As a, as a <laughs> Yeah, and people were like, for five minutes, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is it. Yeah, this is the guy we need. So yeah, so that means he can. He, there's not a whole lot of pressure on him to to do it. Um, you know, but you know, we'll see where the. That, that's why you need a movement in the streets that, yeah. because that's that's the only thing left. There isn't yeah. going to be kind of electoral pressure on him. You need you know pure kind of social and cultural pressure on him. And we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But I do want to do want to add that like the summer for me was um, I mean, it was re- it was very revealing because I think for the first time, a lot of people who wouldn't consider themselves leftist or even like, you know, organizers, you know, um, were able to kind of peer through the cracks of like these contradictions, like, you know, in American life, especially, especially with regards to like policing, right, and law enforcement and criminal justice. And I think that it really showed people that like a movement, like it is possible, right? And these things happen slowly, but it's completely possible for a movement like that, you know, in the streets to actually sway these politicians, if only because they're scared, right? Yeah. You know, and I mean, not scared for their lives, but scared about being reelected. Right. Right. So, Ryan, I don't know a lot about this. And I want you to walk me through it. Um, the infrastructure and education bill, I think it's this American Families Plan. I have not gone through the minutiae of what that is. But can you give a rundown of what that is? And um, especially if you feel like I feel like this is this is what people were asking for for a long time. Progressives. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least some sort of nascent like beginnings of a social democracy. Right. Or at least reinvigorating the welfare state that's been just emaciated over the past like 50, 60 years. What is what is this bill about and what is what is it going to do for American families and the infrastructure bill as well? Yeah, so right, you're right. So there's two and they kind of work in, in concert, but not necessarily. One's the American Jobs Plan, that's the infrastructure bill, and the other is the American Families Plan, which you mentioned. And so the Families Plan is interesting because it has identified a place where progressives can make huge gains in mm-hmm. in uh, making the country a lot more like the more generous uh, welfare states of Western Western Europe for workers and for families, without running up against you know massive industrial and corporate opposition, because mm-hmm. Democrats, particularly Democrats like Biden, are just going to buckle, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the face of um, you know they can't even wave a patent yeah. for the, in the middle of a, a pandemic because of you know pharmaceutical pressure, and so. Uh, and, you know, Biden has been very clear that he's has no interest in taking on the insurance companies and the drug makers and the device makers. And you know, he went he went through that just for the milk toast Obamacare. And they're and they're all scarred from that. So when it comes to uh, more money for families and subsidizing uh, child care, not only is corporate America not hostile to it, there's there's plenty of corporate America that's like you want to give more money to our workers so that they can work more. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just don't tax us for it. Yeah. Like don't we don't want to we don't want to pay that part, but if you want to figure out a way to make that happen, go for it. But, you know, it would make life much less barbaric for people in in this country. Like so the the child tax credit which rightly was criticized for being just one year, yeah. but rightly was praised as breaking the back of the kind of Reagan Clinton consensus that that any any cash benefits that exist in our in our uh, in our system cannot go to poor people. Mm. 
you know, you, they can only go to people who've worked a certain amount. It's very, you know, very much around this, this ideology of, of work is good. Yeah. Um, and you know, if, if you can't find work or you're not working right now, then, then you're bad. And any, any support, any subsidies for you is just encouraging you to continue your life on the dole. Exactly. And so this tax credit, you know, broke away from that and was like, no, everybody gets it. And it's, and it's a decent amount of money. I mean, it's, um, you know, $300 a month per kid, um, depending on their age. It's a little, it's a little bit different, but so if you've got two kids, um, 600 bucks a month. Yeah. That's life changing. Some people, you got three, $900 a month. That's huge. Mm. Uh, and so the new families plan extends it through 2025, mm. which means that Democrats either need to stay in power and extend it again in 2025, or it needs to be so effective and, and popular that they can't, that, that Republican, you know, whatever kind of national fascist version of Republicans takes over is, is comfortable extending it. Um, and then there's a ton of money going into childcare to both raise the wages that are paid. And this is, this is, this is impossible to do just using the free market. Cause think about what you're trying to do. You have to raise the wages and improve the quality of childcare, but then you also have to make it cheaper. Yeah. yeah. So the only way to do that is with public support. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like there's just like you, if something, if you raise the wages and make it higher quality, it's going to cost more money. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you're just leaving that in the hands of the market, you'll wind up with what we have now, which is it costing more money, um, it per hour to get crappy daycare yeah. than you can make at a median hourly wage. And so that's just a broken system. And so you have all of these, uh, Hardy's managers, you know, going around yeah. <laughs> complaining that they can't find burger flippers. Well, pay them more fucking money. Maybe yeah, pay them more money and actually make it so that their hourly wage means they didn't lose money sending their kid to childcare. Yeah. yeah. Cause who wants to, who wants to be in the, in a Hardy's kitchen paying to be there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're making a wage, uh, okay, fine. Then that, then that, then that, then that's a job and you're, and you're, you're you know, enough people are going to do it. Yeah. You're not going to do it for free or you're not going to do it. You're not going to make, you know, $8 an hour at Hardee's and then, and then pay $18 an hour to keep your kids in childcare. Exactly. Sensible people are like, no, screw that. I'm staying home with my kids. So you, you got to grapple with that and, and it would help, it'll help the Hardee's folks. So yeah, pay, you pay, pay them more, but also uh, make childcare more affordable and then it, it nets out. Where, where's the money coming from for this? See, it's funny because like there, you know, in Congress, they talk about a pay for. Mm. All right. We're going to we're going to do this spending here and we're going to pay for that with with this, you know, tax increase over here. And but that's obviously that's not actually how it how it works. Like you have you have two sets of books. You have the books that are the spending, you know, the books that are the revenue. You don't match and say, well, this particular program um, is funded by this particular stream, even in social security mm. where they say that your, your payroll tax, um, is, is a funding stream for, uh, your eventual benefits that you're going to get. That's just a political kind of fiction yeah. to, to help build support for it among, among the public. And it's great. Like it's smart. You should, because then people, you try to come at social security or Medicare at this point, people are like, I paid for that. Yeah. You're not, you're not messing with like, my money. That's not yours. Exactly. Yeah. That's my money. Yeah. yeah. That's why these Republicans who hold up the signs that say, keep your government hands off my Medicare. 
we laugh at them because you're like, dude, it's your Medicare is a public program. Yeah. But to, to them, they're like, no, no, no. I've been paying Medicare taxes my whole life. This is my Medicare. And that's actually what kind of we want them to think because then they're on the front lines defending it. But even that, that's just a, that's just an accounting fiction. Mm -hmm. Like the social security is just paid out basically by the treasury through the social security administration. All these other programs are paid out through the treasury. And then when the treasury needs extra money, it goes to the uh, federal reserve or, or it, or it puts out um, treasury bonds or puts out treasury bonds and the federal reserve buys the treasury bonds. And so it's, it's all just accounting. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, this is the amount of revenue and this is the amount of, of spending. So, uh, I don't actually remember if, if they're trying to pay for the American families planned. Um, I know they're trying to pay for the American jobs plan and make that, you know, deficit neutral by raising taxes on, you know, the highest earners by in increasing capital gains rates. Um, I think they do the stepped up basis thing where mm -hmm. it's so that when you pass down stocks to your kids, they don't get this massive tax break. Um, you know, things like things like that, which are good on, in themselves to reduce inequality, but but shouldn't hold up the spending. And what about the infrastructure bill now, um, especially because, I mean, I live in Atlanta and I can't drive down like, you know, like a road without like hitting like a pothole. Right. Like, I mean, just our bridges are collapsing. Right. <laughs> I mean, even when we talk about, um, you know, investment in, um, you know, uh, renewable energy sources, you know, just giving people jobs to go out there and I don't know, like build solar panels or do anything. Right. That involves like kind of reinvigorating our like national infrastructure. What is what is that? And it sounds like an ambitious bill. Like, what are some of the details of that? Right. So, like you said, there, there's a that what they're trying to do is le you know leverage um, leverage private sector investment by by marrying it to public sector investment, which is which is smart. You know, if you're going to turn things around, there's trillions and trillions of dollars of of private capital swimming around. It is agnostic. Yeah. about you know where it goes it's just it's just looking for the the best return and so you, if you can take public money and direct it so that the private money then believes that investing in windmills and solar panels and um upgrading uh you know upgrading buildings and and otherwise decarbonizing the economy then you're leveraging your power yeah. you know many many times over yeah. there's still a lot of um negotiating going on about what the size is going to be and and you know what what projects in 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 particular are looking at but that's the you know that's the that's the fundamental structure of it you know that i've seen warnock and ossoff boasting about all the money that they're bringing back to georgia yeah. uh so i i would assume that one of the first things that they're going to deal with is some of those potholes yeah yeah um and good lord, they got to do something about the traffic in Atlanta. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't I know just, what. But you, how can you run a city if like you can't get two miles in in less than an hour? It's just obscene. If I if I leave my house, I'm uh, like thirty minutes outside the city. But if I leave my house to get on I twenty, I mean, I'm driving on I twenty, and within five minutes, I hit traffic for the next like the rest of my trip. And it's every single day, no matter what time it is, unless it's like after rush hour. If we're talking about like eight nine o'clock. That's when it dies down. It's horrible. Like, and people are like organizing their days around it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's just absurd. Like, you can't can't. Run. I don't. So uh, maybe uh, all of these uh, people boycotting Georgia will yeah. will help with the traffic. <laughs> 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 Hopefully, we can uh, rely on Pete 
we can rely on Pete Buttigieg uh, to help get us some uh, some uh, public transit. There you go. Get those bike lanes out there. <laughs> exactly. Um, big thing I want to jump to because um, this is something that passed the House and uh, it's awaiting uh, Senate, uh, the PRO Act. Mm-hmm. And it's something I've seen you talk about a lot. And um, actually, it was your reporting and other reporting that made me realize that this is actually really important. And like, it's a big fucking deal. Like it is to uh, quote Joe Biden. This is a big effing deal, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the PRO Act. And then I think all these bills that we've been talking about proposals, I think the 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 problem is that uh, it has to pass the Senate. Right. And has to withstand the ire animosity from um, Republicans. Um, Talk a little bit about the PRO Act and what are the chances that it is going to pass the Senate, especially with Democrats who seem a little bit more ambivalent. I think Joe Manchin has come out in support of it, Mm -hmm. but other folks uh, have not. So if I were a gambling person, I would put a lot of money on the entire that there's very little chance the entire thing goes through. Mm. There are negotiations ongoing uh, that are trying to get the remaining couple people that they need to get on board. Mm. Meanwhile, they're also drafting it in such a way that they're going to attach it. And this was a big win for labor. They're going to attach it to the American jobs plan, Mm. which means that it, it will be submitted for the reconciliation process. Mm. The parliamentarian who the senators have vested with this godlike authority. I have no idea. By the way, I had no idea this was a this was a thing. It's like it's become so <laughs> utterly absurd and ridiculous. Um, and she she now reigns over that place like a like a monarch <laughs> and is is one you now in the sense that she was not elected. Mm. Um, and she rules in an unchecked <laughs> manner. It's supposed to be advisory. You know, it's, here's here's my take. The Senate rules are complicated. Here's my take. Here's why I believe that this either is or is not able to go through under reconciliation. And then the chair, who doesn't have to be Kamala, mm-hmm. like the chair could be Bernie, the chair could be Chuck Schumer, anybody who's sitting in the chair can say, thank you for your opinion. The chair rules X. And her opinion has nothing to do with what the chair rules. But there's this norm in the Senate that uh, whatever the chair rules goes, basically almost never been uh, overridden. Instead, what Republicans do cleverly, they just fire the person. Yeah, yeah, just replace (laughs) the person with somebody else. And be like, right, and in the application, it's like, do you think, in the interview, you think a $15 minimum wage qualifies? Do you think Pro Act qualifies? Like, I I do. You're hired. Yeah. All right, now go write that ruling or go write that opinion. Uh, their, Their problem is that Manchin, um, and others, and and Biden is a problem on this too, have said they don't want to take that route. Hmm. And so if if they if they object to that route, then that means they can withhold their vote on whatever on whatever you know process you have to go through to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. So it's not quite as simple as Schumer just doing it, though. Schumer ought to be you know really playing a lot more hardball with you know ar- around this parliamentarian question. But on the Pro Act, they're going to submit it. Lots of it um, ought to be uh, okay under reconciliation and so, like some of the best stuff. And in fact, the um, like, so the, to me, like there are a lot of important components of this. One of the most significant is reforming how, how elections are done. Mm. So if you think of the Bessemer election with Amazon, the Amazon was able to basically do do anything it wanted. Yeah. Um, even violating labor laws, unfair practice laws, uh, to intimidate their workers with, with no real concern 
that whatever the punishment was for getting caught, if they even do get caught, would would outweigh the benefits of breaking the law. So company major companies they just go ahead and they just do whatever they want. Yeah. What what this policy would say if you do, if you don't follow the rules and, and when we catch you, uh, there will there'll be you know there'll be more money for enforcement and this and that. It, it, it overturns a Supreme Court opinion that says that NLRB can't issue these fines, so they can start issuing fines. They can I think the, I think it's like ten thousand dollars a day. Oh wow! Um, for these fines, which you know starts to add up, not necessarily to an Amazon, but yeah. Um, you know, $10,000, it could be per infraction. So if you're racking up a ton of infractions per day, like that starts to hurt. No. That, it also, that also helps drive media coverage. Like if Amazon's getting fined a hundred yeah. grand a day <laughs> for its unfair practices, like that, that's going to change the nature of the public conversation yeah. about that. And because a lot of these fines already exist and you're changing the number, mm. you know, they're changing the amount that's fined, that should be fine under reconciliation because you're just moving numbers. And so that has budget impact. And in order to have that budget impact, you have to reform uh, the underlying laws. So like, so that kind of reform, which is a centerpiece of, of the PRO Act, it should be able to go through under, under reconciliation. Then your question is, do you get 50 votes for it? Mm, yeah. And people are pretty confident, like Mark Warner today, um, was fine. Finally, broke his silence on the Pro Act, and said what you would expect him to say. You know, we have a new economy. He's worried about gig workers, and but he's working with the the, the drafters of the bill, and he's trying to figure out ways to you know get to a yes. Like Warner and Kelly and Cinema, who are the only three remaining holdouts, they don't want they don't want to go into Warner doesn't care about his election. I don't think, but Kelly and Cinema, they don't want to go in with this much animosity they, they don't want to be the ones that kind of stand in the way yeah if there are 10 people against it i think they're fine being against it yeah yeah um and, and that's why they love it when joe manchin takes the heat for them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like they, the rest of the senate caucus when manchin's getting killed they're like excellent exactly yeah yeah Tra train yeah. your fire on that man nothing to see over here <laughs> like don't worry don't worry about me he seems um, to revel in it, though. He seems to enjoy this position of being the kingmaker. Right, because he's in a heavily Republican state now, mm -hmm. too. And so if he's got the media or the or or liberals yelling at him, mm -hmm. that helps him back home. Yeah, yeah. Because he just says to his folks back home, he's like, see, I told, I'm telling you I'm like a conservative dude. Yeah. The liberals hate me. Look, look at AOC over here trashing me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's not exactly where Kelly and Cinema are. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I think it it, it could I think it, I think a significant amount of the pro act can clear reconciliation and and just, and big pieces of it um, can move can move forward, which would allow you know the ranks of organized labor to grow by millions. Yeah, yeah. There's something else in there I thought too is really important is that it uh, prevents employers from misclassifying workers as independent contractors, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's like especially important right now. And I mean, even if like you don't want to join a union or ambivalent about joining a union because of like, you know, 60 years of like a red scare, scare fair mongering, mm -hmm. like the fact that this will make it easier for people to join a union, especially like black people, people of color, right? That is something that will hopefully shrink the uh, wealth and income inequality gap, hopefully over time. Right. Yeah. And not just easier, but legal. Legally. Yes. Like, yes legally. For, for, uh, for independent contractors, like it's straight up illegal mm -hmm. 
to organize into a union, mm, yeah. which I think a lot of people don't realize, but it's like, that's utterly absurd. Yeah. And if you like, if you, and if you go to a construction site, um, or you go to a lot of warehouses now, you're going to find them mostly populated by people who are getting 1099s, yeah. you know, so not only do they not have benefits, they don't have, you know, basic worker protections, but they're not allowed to look around the site and talk to their uh, colleagues about forming a union. Yeah. Like it's like, you can't do it. it it's, uh, it's absurd. It's insane. Like they're, they're, they're part of a collective crew taking direction from a boss. And yet we pretend that they're not workers exactly. who are eligible to form, eligible to form a union. And because of, I guess, partly because gig work is, is new also because it, everybody takes an Uber, no. uh, everybody, you know, lots of people use Airbnb, et cetera. Like the gig economy has kind of overshadowed the conversation about the, the pro act, yeah. but those independent contractors are a small percentage of, of the overall independent contractors who are, who are misclassified. And if you're an Uber driver who, um, wants to drive 10 hours a day, like pro act doesn't hurt you. Forcing Uber to give you a W two rather than a ten ninety nine doesn't mean you have to show up at eight a.m. and check in with your boss, yeah, um, and do and and be on a particular shift or do any of the other things that people rightly object to when it comes to work. Mm. Like nobody likes, you know. Well, I mean, some some people get <laughs> off on like a, a set schedule like yeah. that, but others just don't want it. Like, yeah, most people don't. When they, right. <laughs> And so you you could there, there's this like fear mongering that the pro act is going to you know force you into some rigid schedule and force everybody to work forty hours a week and this and that. But that's not that's that's not at all that's not at all right. You could like life wouldn't change. They would just get a W two. Yeah, yeah. Instead of a ten ninety nine. And uh, we were talking about cinema earlier, and um, I mean this still makes me incredibly angry. Like every time I think about it. Um, her voting down the uh, the fifteen dollar minimum wage that would have been included, like in the COVID relief bill. What what about Joe Biden and what? Because um, there were there was some there was a a news conference um where this reporter I forget from what outlet, but um and you know not a not a socialist by any means, but fairly asked Jen Psaki like why is Biden pushing harder for getting Neera Tandon as the OMB director but not pushing as hard for this $15 minimum wage, which would actually help people, you know, like near Tandon getting this position is not going to help mm -hmm. people. If anything, it's going to hurt people, right? right? What, what, what can Joe Biden write an executive order? Can he declare like write an executive order and make a $15 minimum wage nationally? Is that something that he can do? And why, I mean, we both know why, but why doesn't he? Right. This is the most frustrating thing. I mean, the minimum wage now is what is it? 7.25 an hour? Yeah, that's insane. He did. That's insane. The the only thing he can do is is uh, for federal workers mm. and contractors, and so he did do that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, a lot of them already make at least that, but many don't, mm. and so you know that that's at least that that's that's the thing he can do by executive order. Mm. Um, part of that particular fight was about. Biden being in the Senate since 1972 <laughs> and just having this like misplaced reverence for Senate norms and being unwilling to buck the parliamentarian. And then all, I guess, and then feeling he didn't have the votes to, yeah. to do it. If Manchin was saying that he, he wasn't going to do it. Uh, but I, I wonder if part of them, there's some nervousness around the minimum wage, like 
as a policy mm-hmm. like there's because it's so you're right like they they haven't made it a huge issue they haven't made it a huge like, um with all of this talk about inflation mm-hmm. like uh you know if we push up wages are you know are we gonna are we gonna spike inflation i don't know so yeah there, i mean it's not over yet yeah. uh and and there if, if they keep facing pressure you know they, they're still working on this bill there's like eight senators that voted against it that they have to win over and then they have to figure out uh the filibuster to get there but you know because they don't want to negotiate with republicans because then republicans are going to start demanding all sorts of um immigration stuff yeah yeah. in exchange that they don't want to do. So one last thing, Ryan, I wanted to jump to um, before uh, kind of close out, because I want to talk about your book a little bit and um, talk about I I don't talk about like a parliamentarian kind of electoralism stuff often, but I want to talk about it with mm-hmm. you. But more importantly, your book is a great I think it's just a great resource for anybody wanting to kind of merge that electoral politics with mass politics, right? Mm-hmm. But um, before that, there's one last thing um, that I think we should grade Biden on or talk about it, which is foreign policy, which is like, if you were expecting him to be any different on that or any American president for that matter, any different on American policy, you are going to be greatly disappointed. Um, apparently he requested $715 billion um, for the Department of Defense's budget in uh, fiscal year 2022, which is like an increase of 1.6% of uh will be of this year um i mean foreign policy i mean this is one thing i think that we can both say no one can be honest and say that um this is something that they were expecting biden to be progressive about right right um i mean we're still uh droning people we're still involved in like covert wars proxy wars and joe biden too i don't think jeremy scahill actually um i think your colleague Mm -hmm. actually did a um an amazing piece on uh investigative uh report on Joe Biden's the past half century of his foreign policy. And basically, Joe Biden has never seen a war that he didn't like. Right. <laughs> so what do we have to look forward to? Uh, and I don't mean look forward to optimistically, but what right. do we have to look forward to with a, a Biden a foreign policy uh, administration? So Democrats in particular have just gotten too comfortable with this defense spending number. Mm-hmm. Uh, 700 billion is insane. Like if you went back in 1990, 1991, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, and there was all this talk about a peace dividend, mm-hmm. you know, that, well, uh, you know, the biggest uh, enemy on the world stage for the United States has, has now collapsed. So we probably don't need to be spending this massive portion <laughs> of our income on, on d- defense anymore. Instead, we've like doubled since then. That's so insane when you put it like that. It's like, <laughs> are you like it should. So let, let, let's let's be like completely moderate mm-hmm. centrist and say you should cut it by half from there. Yeah. That would mean you should be at about 100 billion, 150 billion a year right now, mm-hmm. which is like considered like radical defund of the Pentagon <laughs> compared to, you know, what compared to the 700 plus billion that it is now and the you know, pentagon's kicking and screaming about only getting a 1.6 percent increase because they're like wait a minute you know there's inflation and the, every, everybody's costs are going up and we need we're paying higher wages to the troops and so that's eating up a lot of our money and like to to have an organization whining about getting 700 plus billion dollars a year when there's nothing for it to do <laughs> yeah yeah this is insane like who are they fighting what war i what, mean like what war is you fighting? Even if even if you wanted to go to go to war in Afghanistan for another twenty years, like you don't need a seven hundred billion dollar annual yeah. uh, military to yeah. to do that. Yeah. So it that that part has just 
is so far out of whack from you know where it where it ought to be mm-hmm. um and joe biden is you know probably never going to be the guy who's going to like you know directly uh you know he's going to directly challenge that he the only couple decent things he did so during the early years of obama he argued strenuously against obama's surge in afghanistan mm. um and he was hostile to intervention in syria mm. so he often finds himself kind of in the middle of these things you know he wasn't for withdrawing necessarily from afghanistan completely but he was for not you know surging in afghanistan so he's like half right mm. that's like often been biden's position he's been half right yeah. about a lot of things yeah. there's so much pressure on the u.s to get out of yemen that you know his his announcement that they were gonna um stop supporting saudi's offensive war mm. there was welcome but then he put in that caveat that they're gonna you know they're only gonna stop support of the offensive yeah yeah war and saudi arabia of course like every other country in the world when it goes to war it says it's defending itself exactly exactly we used to have a war department Mm -hmm. back when we were a weak country that was like afraid of other countries Mm -hmm. like uh we called it the war department (laughs) (laughs) swinging it putting it on the table (laughs) we will go to war yeah then the second that we become like the leading empire after world war ii we change we (laughs) change the department of defense (laughs) and that's how you know we're about to become an empire yeah that's that's a really good point actually like just the verbiage of it because yeah it's like who are we defending against what like (laughs) i was with my girlfriend um we went to we went to this uh this this restaurant um, that had opened up and we were watching like they had the TV on and it's like cable news or something. It was a commercial for like, you know, go army or something like that. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, like what other nation on earth has advertisements for joining the army? Like what perpetual endless war are we fighting where you constantly need to, you know, replenish like your forces? Like I, I truly don't. Un- I mean, I do understand it, but the insanity of it is what leaves me speechless sometimes. It really does. Yeah, no. It, and, and like flying fighter jets over the top of football games. Yeah. Like yeah. the, the, you know, the, the militaristic creep into the culture Yeah, compared to, you know, the whole 19th century, you know, there was barely an army. Yeah. Like after the Civil War and Reconstruction, they like army evaporated. Yeah. Um, and there there were mostly weren't police forces even yeah. halfway through the 19th century. There are barely any jails or prisons. Mm. Um, you know, all of these things are contemporary inventions that mm. we can't even begin to imagine not existing. So in that and that's actually a good uh, it's a good segue. So I, I really I haven't I guess like again I said um your book we've got people and I'll put a link to it so people can buy it um which I think everyone should I mean I have some of my comrades who are uh, uh non electoralists which think that uh, you know even if I'm having this conversation with you they're like it's it's a waste of time it's fucking pointless <laughs> and your book actually is uh, points to the contrary because you trace the grassroots organizing from Jesse Jackson and his uh, presidential runs to AOC and I've I've kind of come to understand that, like, since the 70s, you know, whether you want to call it, um, you know, neoliberalism, austerity, whether it's just sort of like the backdraft of the civil rights movement, all these counterculture movements, it doesn't seem like our politics is connected to a mass politics anymore. Right. Like we can't imagine. Right. Like mass movements that are actually paid attention to and listened to by our elected officials. Right. Now it's just about like Bill Clinton who started this. Well, Jimmy Carter, I guess, getting in a room with like corporate elites. 
and handing the reins to them and allowing them to make the decisions, right? But Jesse Jackson, especially AOC, are two examples, and I know people now can be upset at AOC for many different reasons. Sure, <laughs> which is fine. I am as yeah. well, but which is fine. But I mean, it can't be denied that her campaign and Bernie's campaign and the way it was able to galvanize everyday people, right? Where I remember Bernie's campaign, especially here in Georgia, before his campaign even got here in 2016, we had our own grassroots, you know, out of DSA, like a Georgia for Bernie thing, where people were making their own uh, flyers and pins and whatnot and doing their own canvassing stuff. And I think that's what really... Like if you want to place any uh, any value in electoralism, that's what that's the kind of feel that we have to be playing on. Right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about like talk a little bit about your book and especially kind of the project of tracing this um, the Democratic Party going from sort of a New Deal type of Democratic Party to more, I guess, in the 90s to more of a corporate funded back party and especially yeah. culminating in the ACA. Right. Which is where you're. You're reporting on that in the book when you talk about that is just abysmal and it's so depressing right. how much could have been done but wasn't right. because of you know yeah. moderate Clintonite type of Democrats. You know? And on yeah, on the link between electoralism and and pressure in the streets, like March, pretty sure that this that is correct. March was the highest kind of average income for the American people in ever. Mm. Like and you know, adjusted for everything. Like people doing a lot better yeah. um, because of uh, the pressure that was put on the on the system yeah. to deliver for people. Um, going back to the the New Deal is is a great example of electoralism and its and its relationship with with social movements, which is a debate that has been going on in our country and and in, in you know social movements across the world for for centuries. And you know there was a robust anarchist movement in the 19th century, which actually. Uh, accidentally probably kicked off the progressive mm. movement by assassinating McKinley and putting, <laughs> making Roosevelt the president. Like, and this is what those anarchists were doing back then. They were killing people all over the place uh, in Europe and, and over here. Yeah. They just walked up and shot and killed the president. Yeah. Um, like, forget punching a fascist. They shot and killed yeah. the dude. The energy uh, of so yesteryear, they, man. Oh, God. Yeah. And so they, they made TR president as yeah. a result. Um, and he goes and then he takes on these big, uh, you know, breaks up these big monopolies. Um, and so throughout the second half of the 19th century, you had a lot of this left wing energy because there was so much misery and despair, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the in the workplace. Women working in these absolutely deplorable garment and laundry uh, conditions, dying um, shortened, having their lives shortened, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of abuse and, and misery that they were putting up with, mm. uh, is, is difficult to even comprehend. And they probably even had it better, um, than the people working in the, in the mines in Pennsylvania or the, uh, the you know, the coal fields, the, yeah. um, the, the, you know, factories, the railroad building, building and operating the railroads, just utterly, you know, deadly occupation. Yeah. Uh, and, at the end of the month, you're you owe more to the company store um, for all of your troubles. Exactly. Um, you 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 survived, and now you're even worse off than you were uh, a month earlier. But you know, at least you got like a piece of bread, yeah. a little bit of a ration of water. Yeah. Um, and so the there was the level of labor militancy was was through the roof. Bosses getting killed, um, you know, wildcat strikes, um, workers getting slaughtered, um, workers getting railroaded by. Uh, you know, but the army breaking up, breaking up strikes mm. and the 
the bosses in the army essentially won. Like the the power of of capital combined with the state uh, is uh, is extraordinary. You know, in in order for workers to be able to um, you know triumph over the combined power of uh, capital and the state, both capital and state have to be much weaker than they were in the second half of the 19th century in the United States. Like if you're looking at the situation in, in, in Russia, Tsarist Russia was a shell of a state. Mm. Uh, and you know, the, the oligarchy there was, you know, was ready to be toppled. And the question was, you know, who, you know, with who was going to do it. That wasn't the situation in the United States. And so, you know, that, so then the great depression, um, comes, comes about mm. and, labor militancy increases again for obvious reasons people are utterly miserable and so the response from democrats in congress and from fdr is the national labor relations act Mm. which has in its preamble like it says the goal of the national labor relations act is to promote cooperation between workers and bosses and to reduce violence in the workplace like that, like that, that's its like actual stated mission. Mm. And so there are going to be plenty of people who are like, screw that. Yeah. Like, what, you know, bring the thunder. Like, we'd rather have the war. Yeah. But, you know, that uh, most workers actually would prefer to just get paid a, a decent, decent wage, yeah. and lead a dignified life mm. and not have to be like facing down Pinkertons. Exactly. You know, exactly. In, and out, exactly. in and out of work. <laughs> as, as romantic and as fun as that might be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Seizing the means of production and having, you know, a proletarian dictatorship is not a it's not it's not that easy and it's not it's not bloodless. Right. No, it's it's definitely not bloodless. And so what the National Labor Relations Act did is it gave the labor movement the the protection of the state. Mm. And when the state was in the hands of uh, either a government that was uh, neutral when it came to labor capital disputes or somewhat sympathetic uh, to labor, then labor through its organizing would make huge gains, mm. not just for itself and its own wages and benefits, but across the board. You mm. see wages and benefits and the quality of life for regular people improving. Mm. When the government would get back into the hands of somebody who al- allied with the capital side of the labor capital dispute, the National Labor Relations Act would still give, give it enough power that it could use the courts and use strikes and use other um, other tactics to at, le- at least try to hold on to some of the gains that it made, rather than what you saw happening in the second half of the nineteenth century with just actual slaughter, yeah. you know, leading to complete strike breaking and replacement by scab workers mm. and the com- demolition. Like a lot of the things and you know movements and people that we celebrate from the second half of that century ultimately lost and were crushed and killed and uh you know decades of of suffering followed and so people can't ignore the role of of the state in furthering and making room for non-electoral mm. movements mm. and so the the idea that like that there's this separation between the two and that there's i'm not into electoralism i'm into uh, you know, building the base or yeah. social movements um, is a nice thing to think, but you know your ability to win those victories depends on, uh, to some degree, what goes on electorally and what goes on on legislatively, because the state is just such a powerful entity that it it just simply can't be ignored in your in your power analysis. Yeah. 
And so, you know, 1965, it, you know, mid-60s, you start to see a little bit of stagnations taking hold. And corporate America, which had been, you know, pretty thoroughly brought to heel um, by, the, by the New Deal, um, by World War II and by growth in the 1950s, starts to decide that it's, it's ready to break out mm. and, uh, and identifies portions of the National Labor Relations Act, actually, that, that it can use to its own benefit mm. to divide labor unions and to break unions. Um, you, you start to see the first pushback against the, the New Deal coalition and the rise of corporate power. Mm. When Carter takes power, unions have now been fighting for about 10 years, you know, a rearguard action, and they, they try to push through this massive piece of labor reform which would have given them tools, you know, fixed a lot of the things that the that capital was using to undermine them. Mm. It came one vote short, and they th they thought at the time, all right, we'll get it next time. Yeah. Like we're right there, we will we'll, we'll get this. They did not get this. Yeah, there was no next time. Yeah, instead they got Reagan. Yeah, Reagan was he was actually a lot of people don't know this. Reagan was endorsed by the air traffic controllers. The same ones he fired. <laughs> yes, because. <laughs> They were uh, they they were an interesting union, and one reason that they went down, they were complete assholes. They were it was all like forty five year old white men who were just like when 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 people heard that they endorsed Reagan, it was like yeah okay yeah that makes sense of course they did. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that checks out. Uh, and so they were these militant labor activists, but also these like reactionary, like racist, mm. um, segregationist assholes. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so they got, they strike like right out of the gate, um, after they got, and, and I went back and read the details of this. They had a sweet offer. Mm. Like if you, if you go back and look at whatever the contract was, they were being offered, you're like, damn, that's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like if the, if the air traffic controllers today could get half that, they'd be yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Immediately take it. Where do I sign? And they're <laughs> like, we're out. And so they like, they storm out mm -hmm. and go on strike and Reagan just fires them all, yeah, and it uh, and it sends a signal to uh, companies across the country that it's like open season yeah. on on labor unions. You want to bust your union? We're either going to step aside or we're going to actively help you yeah. in in that process. And Democrats had just been annihilated at the polls um, in nineteen nineteen eighty, and they just uh, are become afraid of their shadow. Yeah. And they 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 think one reason they lost is that all of this corporate money was was being spent against them. So they're like, well, we need to go get this corporate money too. Mm. And so they 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 set a new strategy that they're going to use their power of controlling the House of Representatives, which they still had, to say that these you know cor that corporations need to pay up. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can imagine how that goes. Like yeah. at first, you're like, we're the boss. You know, you pay us. We're, we we chair this committee. Um, but very quickly it's like, all right, you want, you want our money here, are the things you got to do. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that's how the party then develops over the next 20 plus years, uh, mm -hmm. with a, a rear guard action that, I, that you mentioned that I write about being led by and kind of personified by Jesse Jackson's, uh, two presidential campaigns, but his 1988 one, the most fascinating because it, you know, he, he comes within a, you know, a, a real frightening um, proximity of of the nomination mm. for for the Washington establishment, like they're in full meltdown mode when they think that 
that Jesse Jackson might be their their nominee going into 1988. That makes me so happy and warms my heart knowing that <laughs> yes. these people were terrified of Jesse Jackson and his Rainbow Coalition. That's so awesome. What pissing themselves? How did he? Um, and I know, like, I'm gonna let you go in a little bit, but I just, I like, I really like love this book because I don't know. I was born in 1990, right? And I didn't even get into politics until like my early 20s. So there was this whole like chapter like in American history, there's a presidential history, modern that I had no idea about. What was Jesse Jackson's like? What was his strategy? And how did people like AOC and Bernie Sanders adopt that like today? What made well, I mean, it didn't end up working. Right. Didn't end up pan out and work, but what what made it a successful grassroots campaign? It it worked in some ways. You mm-hmm. know, he gave this great speech um that people could find on YouTube. Um if maybe they search David and Goliath, maybe that'll find it. Hmm. Um, rocks just la- he talks about rocks just laying around, and he yeah. he, ru- he runs through all of the uh, states that that Reagan won against Carter, and then he talks about the margin hmm. um, that he won them by, and they were they're all of these. Na- you know, we think of this Reagan victory as this massive landslide, but they're all of these uh, states that he won by fairly closable margins. Mm. And then he talks about the number of people in that state who were um, black and unregistered mm. or black and registered and didn't vote, Hispanic and registered but didn't vote, Hispanic and unregistered, mm. students who were not registered or were registered and didn't vote. Like he adds all these numbers together. It's a rare uh, kind of orator who can throw around so many different numbers and still have, still have the crowd like eating out of the palm of his hand. <laughs> Um, and he calls that 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 gap between the margin of defeat and the the number of voters who just sat out. He calls that the margin of our despair. Mm. Um, and and he's like, so you know, so he makes the same argument that you've been hearing lately from a lot of people, which is that if you want to beat Republicans, you have to go out and inspire more Democrats to come out. And the way to do that is not to be a Republican light, yeah. but by to you know stand boldly for something and. And his 84 campaign in particular um, registered something like 2 million voters, like an extraordinary Holy number shit. of voters. And if you look at if you look at later the 1992 win by Clinton, and it's in the book, but there, there are a number of states that Clinton clearly won, like indisputably won by the margin of the voters that Jesse Jackson mm. had registered previously. Um and Clinton at the time was called, um, p- people may or may not believe this, they, were, they called him the first black president. I remember that. Yeah. I remember <laughs> like, that, unfortunately. <laughs> and one reason was because it, so many new black voters came out and voted for him. Mm-hmm. But the reason that they were registered and they were engaged was because, for the most part, Jesse Jackson uh, you know, had, had organized and registered them four years and, and, and eight years earlier. Um, he won a lot of delegates and so when he went to the convention he changed he was able to win a change in the delegate rules from winner take all down to proportional wow. uh, w- winner take all m- makes it much harder for um insurgent candidates to mm. kind of catch up because like you win the first couple states and you're up like 500 to zero and it's like you're done and clinton hillary clinton would have been the nominee uh, under winner take all like mm. if jesse jackson had not changed those rules uh, obama would not have beaten clinton in 2008 but jesse jackson also brought in to politics a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have been like you were talking about the people who are not into electoralism yeah. like if in 1988 
only like only nerds and like class presidents were like getting involved in like <laughs> <Yeah>. democratic politics. <laughs> yeah. Like, what was the point? Like, exactly. Yeah. You're just like meekly defending some of the uh, some of the gains of the New Deal against the Republicans. Like, you're, there was there was nothing inspiring about being a Democrat then. Mm-hmm. And you know, Bernie Sanders is running as an independent in Vermont at the time, and so. But Je- when Jesse Jackson starts running, he's like, no, we're going to do universal health care, mm-hmm. uh, gender equity, um, gay rights, which mm-hmm. there was no LGBT yet, um, or environmentalism because it wasn't climate change yet. But like basically Bernie's platform. Yeah. But 20 years earlier, all of these people who were interested in making the world a better place come off the sidelines and get involved. Um, Paul Wellstone gets, you know, becomes Jesse Jackson's like Minnesota uh, chair. Mm-hmm. Uh Bernie Sanders participates in his first ever Democratic caucus. Mm. Uh, and he has this, there's this press conference on, on YouTube that's that's fun to watch where he's like ex- explaining like why this socialist mayor of Burlington is going to participate in a Democratic caucus. <laughs> and he, he goes on and wins um, Vermont yeah. for Jesse Jackson. And Jackson to this, to this day is proud of having won Vermont because yeah. it, it is the whitest place on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they vote and, and he won the Vermont caucus. And that was significantly because of Bernie. And then Bernie went to the, you know, the was, was, you know, going to bring the caucus delegates to the convention for Jackson. He's like, and so he's like trying to bring people in to say, no, like there's a, like there's a point now mm-hmm. in, in participating in the, in the democratic caucuses, because we can actually move this party, yeah. which, you know, presaged his his own run one thing i um i will say before i let you go one thing i really did like about um jesse jackson's campaign is the the idea of the rainbow coalition and um and i mean this was inspired me about bernie right is that like i've always looked at a reconstruction right as this like really promising time that like like it's so sad and unfortunate right that it didn't pan out and continue the way that abolitionists had envisioned right Mm -hmm. and about like at the end of the day, the greatest country, the greatest trick this country's ever played is making the poorest white man think he's better than the richest black man. Right. <laughs> and if we could just have that interracial class solidarity. Right. And like actually like what is the commonality that we all have that we all work. Mm-hmm. Right. That people languish like in factories or in like cubicles or at restaurants, whatever. As you were talking about earlier, you like you're working this job. And then if you have kids, that money that you're making is going right back into childcare, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's also the same example we were talking about the 19th century with factory workers, right? After you barely survive, right? <laughs> you're giving away to then go spend it in like a company town, you know? And Jesse Jackson and Bernie and, you know, AOC, yo, like also too, spoke to people's sense of self-autonomy, you know? And that they weren't coming here to save you, but that together we could all do this. And I don't know, as someone who, again, is a, a little bit sour in electoralism, even though I voted for Warnock and Ossoff, that kind of makes me uh, just think, all right, man, we got a slow burn. And in the meantime, these things matter. And there are people in these positions that can help us, but only if we can organize and push issues enough right. to make them pay attention to it. So, yeah, I don't know. Call me a liberal if you want. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's just the way it is. Right? I mean, to be fair, I also came out of uh, organizing with the Democratic Party. So. Maybe I'm still a little, uh, still a little bit, uh, you know, lip pilled, but it's fine though. I think that there's really no other way to do it, man. No, outside of a violent revolution. If you want to do the January sixth thing, go right ahead. No, please don't do that. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm not advising you to start an insurrection. But um, 
Ryan, thank you so much for talking to me, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Can I uh, can I uh, get you to plug anything that um, I mean, I'm sure people know you, but plug anything that you might have coming out or all your uh, your social media stuff? Yeah, I t- I uh, I've, I've started hosting my own podcast, um, which is called Deconstructed, which is different than you know. It, I think it fits neatly into the kind of lefty ecosystem in the oh. sense that it's weekly, but it like this week we're doing the Pro Act, mm. for instance. Um, and so we try we're, we try to find something that's in the news and, and go deeper on it so that people can come away with a more detailed understanding and bring in bring in the history of how how we got there. It's 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 not it's not really kind of a like a two hour conversational like Joe Rogan style <laughs> yeah. um, uh, thing. And as and as much as I might uh, want it to be funny or something, it's not. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, not, it's, it's not it's not Chapo. It's not yeah, it's not, yeah. not this even. Um, and so that that's I would suggest that and and we keep it fairly short too. Yeah. So if if people want to if people want a place where they can get like a little bit more um, about what's going on um, and the history behind it, that's a that's a spot for it. A little meat instead of a uh, junk food. It's a little meat. Yeah. I, I really uh, I've been listening to Deconstructed uh, back when Mehdi Hassan mm. was the host. Yeah, and uh, I won't say anything bad about Mehdi, but I'm, <laughs> very, I'm very happy that you're hosting it now. I appreciate I'm much that. happier with that. Appreciate yeah. that. But yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, like uh, unfortunately, yeah, uh, yeah. on my by my name. <laughs> you can, people can find me there and troll me all they want. Yeah. Cool, Ryan. Thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate it. And you know, like. If you're down, like any other time, I need to do uh, deep dives into um, like current events, especially with like uh, electoral politics, local, well, national politics. If you wouldn't mind coming back on, because yeah, my uh, pleasure. I I do not know any, as smart as I people think I am. I am a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again, Ryan. Appreciate you, brother. You got it. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates.